You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Saturday Morning Life. You're joined by myself, Umar Bhatti, and my co-host, Nizushan Kaloon, and uh, two people joining us remotely as well, uh, Rahanul Ajima and Takreem Malik. Good morning, gents. How are we doing? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. All good. Umar, how are you doing? Yeah. Perfect. Uh, a bit windy outside, but uh, we can deal with that later. We have a jam-packed um, session for you again. Um, we know there's been a lot of go- a lot of things going on in the news, and uh, we're here again to dive into the news and uh, hopefully make a bit of a. Um, analysis of it uh, hopefully we can have you guys also join in uh, remember this is a live and interactive show uh, you can call on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at voice of islam uk and where else uh, to start with the of uh, news which has been uh, taking us um, uh, which has shocked us really uh, which is the earthquake in uh, tur- uh, southern turkey and north of syria um, you know I don't think anyone does not know about this, uh, but just to give you a, a refresh, um, uh, this earthquake took about place about a week ago, and um, the death toll in Turkey has now gone up to nearly 39,000, uh, and uh, both in Turkey and Syria has brought it up to nearly 43,000. These are still rough estimate figures, and um, they're still looking through um, the... Uh, the rubble and uh, the magnitude of the earthquake was 7.8, which is one of the deadliest disasters in um, modern Turkey history. And uh, people are still uh, being found out. Uh, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing these miracles, um, you know, 100 hours later, 200 hours later, and um, it's just fascinating. Uh, and you really do question, how are they staying alive, really? Uh, but uh, you know, in other news, also with forty-three thousand, there are lots of people who have lost loved ones and uh, lost uh, uh, their friends, their brothers, um, and it's uh, and, and it's saddening. But the world is coming uh, together, um, and that is actually one of the points we're going to talk about: whether the world is actually coming together, uh, because there's been a wider conversation around this, whether uh, the response has been as good as what uh, as it has been, or whether um we are doing things slower such as uh syria was struggling in the first 48 72 hours it wasn't getting any help from the international community um you know they say the first 72 48 hours are the most critical at uh, when an earthquake earthquake takes place so there are some things that we need to look at uh, whether uh, international community have been uh, uh looking after uh, Turkey and northern Syria. Of course, Syria is uh, a very, still a very hot topic uh, due to the uh, due to its um, uh, leadership in there. Uh, As- uh, Gen- uh, not General Assad, uh, President Assad, and uh, its proxy wars uh, taking place in there, and it's a very unstable country. So it is uh, something to take into account. But um, I want to go to Takrim because Takrim, uh, you're a volunteer at Humanity First. Um, uh, UK or international, is it? Um, international. International. So I'm sure you have a bit of a, a background in, in this and you, you know what's happening. Uh, can you just give us a rundown of what Humanity First, one of the um, NGOs, international charities are doing down there? Yeah. So um, I've been looking to serve in the Humanity First Disaster Relief for you know, four or five years now. And the good thing about, one of the great things about Humanity First is having a volunteer, a volunteer base and being so quick to respond um, it's one of the greatest strengths, really. 
Um, and so within literally a few days of the earthquake happening, I think three teams out there now, uh, from America and from uh, the UK as well, I think three or four teams out there now. And what they've been doing is they've just been on the ground, you know, helping with the relief efforts, um, helping fundraising, and, you know, kind of being able to support the local community there. Uh, one of the things, the aspects that people don't really realise in um, disaster relief is that when such events happen, the point of international teams going out there is not to immediately take over the ground and, you know, start doing all these rescue efforts themselves. Actually, that's, that's detrimental in, in many different ways because you don't want to kind of overshadow the people on the ground there because they know the area much better than you do. They've, you know, they live in the area. They have a, a much better understanding of the area. So what the supporting network role and supporting role is where um, the international uh, aid uh, teams come in and then also the help in fundraising as well. One thing that, one aspect that is really kind of, you know, highlighted recently um, in a few conferences that I've been to as well is the, the topic of localization um, and sustainability. So localization essentially means that before disaster happens, what you have is you have, uh, you have teams that are trained to liaise with people on the ground. And when disaster happens, that you go there and the first thing you do is establish your communication and establish the point of contact with the teams on the ground there. Uh, and so in the videos that you'll see of people rescuing, you, you might see there's not a lot of kind of foreign teams there. You might say, you know, where are all these people that are coming from the UN and America and where are all these charities working? Well, actually, they're almost working behind the scenes, if that makes sense, to do kind of the the, the stuff that, um, the non-priority tasks, for example. So making food for the volunteers that are out there searching for people in the rubble, for example, or kind of, um, you know, making sure the donations of food and clothing and water and that kind of stuff is there as well. Um, and not necessarily on the front lines, being through the rubble looking for survivors um, because that is preferred, you know, people on the ground are preferred to, to be doing that. Um, but Humanity First are out there. Um, anybody who's listening, I would urge you to, you know, have a look at their uh, uh, support efforts and support them through donations and so on and so forth. Um, they are one of the best charities again to donate to just because the fact they have such a high uh, rate of uh, donations going straight to people there due to being a volunteer uh, run charity. I was having a look, interestingly, over uh, a few days ago at the uh, CEO salaries of major charities. I think Islamic Relief, the CEO was on like 81,000, 90,000. And there was actually a newspaper article I read recently as well um, about people questioning that why the, you know, the, the 13, 14 big charities in the UK, uh, why are their CEOs being paid up to like 250,000 for Oxfam, I think it was. Um, and that's an interesting debate to have. You know, should charities volunteer run? Should they be professional organisations? On one hand, professional organisations can raise more money because they put more effort and more money into marketing and stuff. On the other hand, that money that they use for marketing is not going towards people that you know it's originally raised for. So a lot of interesting questions being raised there. And these questions will be raised again and again, I think, over the course of the next few days, weeks and months, as this disaster progresses. Um, I was having a read uh, as well on another article, uh, which Syria was accused of playing politics uh, mm. with uh, the Turkey earthquake. I'm not sure we'll go on to that later, but... Yeah. We, we we will be, uh, uh, before we go there, I think uh, that conversation about charities, um, uh, uh, CEOs being paid, I think that will be for another time. But that's a very important question uh, to, uh, to ask. I want to come to Rahan before we do go into that um, um, article which we want to speak about, about politics within this uh, earthquake situation. Rahan, how did it make you feel? Uh, when you saw this uh, earthquake taking place, and what are your thoughts on this? Yes, Omar, this is oh, this is the first time we've had a show after the earthquake, and um, I think obviously the whole time it, it's always shocking news 
when you hear about something like this. Especially, I think most of us are waking up in the morning and uh, waking up to the news that this earthquake has happened. And those that haven't experienced an earthquake or disaster like this can't, cannot fully imagine the extent, I think. So personally, for me, when I was reflecting on this over the next couple of days when the earthquake happened, I was like, I don't truly understand what happened. So I was seeing clips online, social media clips. Um, over the last um, two weeks or so, I've been seeing um, people being rescued and... Uh, um, state of desperation and a lot of people where they're calling out to their family members to respond to them, etc. Um, so I think it's been quite devastating. And I think the only reason, only way you can actually really understand what that is if you, if you experience it yourself or your goal, actually join these efforts um, to rescue, etc. and help out. So, and I, even this morning, we were still, like you mentioned, Omar, there's still cases of miracles as such. So I remember a girl, um, she was rescued after a just over 11 days, which 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 is um, amazing, but uh, there's also the news coming up, and the death toll, the injury toll is increasing rapidly. It's gone up so quickly. I know initially um, the World Health Organization predicted um, around 20,000 deaths, uh, which is I think a day or two after the earthquake, but that's massively risen up, risen up now, right? We've gone up to we already hit 44,000, unfortunately, and that could maybe go up. I know this morning I've also checked the news. That Christian Atsu, the former um, Chelsea player, has been found as well, and he unfortunately has passed away. So lots of lots of sad news, Omar. Indeed, and in uh, to God we belong, uh, to Him shall we return. Um, that is, uh, thank you for that, Rohan. Um, indeed, um, it's an ongoing situation. This isn't going to uh, end here because you know southern Turkey and northern Syria will need to rebuild. Uh, but talking about rebuilding, uh, we need to speak about. Uh, this political situation, which um, political quake, really, you can talk about, which um, Dagrim uh, alluded on, uh, because we need to have a bit of context as to why uh, there was this uh, sort of accusation or this word being thrown around of uh, a political quake. And the reason is because the situation in Syria, uh, we don't need to go too far back, but we know that Syria is heavily. Uh, uh, struggling in terms of um, uh, its political scene, economic scene. We have the US uh, and the West uh, versus um, uh, Russia in an proxy war um, taking place over there. And the northern strait where uh, the aid will be coming through is being blocked uh, by uh, the rebels as well, which includes uh, ISIS as well. So it's a really hard situation. And that's why um, the UN is also getting involved and northern uh, Syria and southern Turkey, uh, the respective uh, countries are actually requesting for um, uh, some help around here because it is a bit sad, sad to see that politics is getting involved straight away when in this instance we were supposed to have uh, a bit of um, uh, calm and presence from the international community. Uh, but as as we know that there is dispute around the control of aid and aid can get lost around. Um, so, Takrim, you know, you mentioned uh, about uh, Syria. Give us a bit of a background uh, or give us some of the uh, what problems we can face uh, in terms of uh, aid not getting through to uh, the people who need it. Yeah, of course. So, like you said, mentioned, the province of Idlib uh, in northwestern Syria is amongst areas actually that one of the worst hit areas by the earthquake. And uh, the issue with Idlib is that it's, it's essentially the last rebel-held area after you know a decade of fighting. Um, and even before the earthquake, there are millions and millions of refugees 
or IDP called inter- internally displaced peoples that settled in the area were escaping war and fleeing war from other parts of Syria. So already this is already an unstable politically and you know, socially uh, unstable area because you have all this infighting and kind of you know uh, unrest uh, from previous years. And so when the, when the earthquake hit, um, it just so happened that unfortunately the areas that are worst affected by the earthquake in South Syria were actually the ones being run by the Turkish-controlled uh, opposition or um, you know the ones being controlled by the rebels that are not backed by the official Syrian government. So now what's happening is that there's accusations. Um, of course, at this point, there's still accusations. Um, but the UN, the, after the Syrian ambassador to the UN, he said that his country um, should be responsible for delivery of all aid into Syria, including those areas that are under... Uh, rebel control. So essentially, he's saying that all aid to Syria should come through us, and there should be no direct contact with the, the Turkish, with the sorry, the opposition uh, or the rebel sorry government uh, in Idlib. And so now there are a lot of issues with that. For example, even before the war, um, like I said, uh, having been in the humanitarian field myself, we've seen that there's a lot of corruption and a lot of kind of uh, with aid. There's a lot of uh, bartering, if that makes sense, as in people will control aid. And uh, governments and uh, charities will work together, or all kind of governments will take part of the aid for themselves. That makes sense, um, due to the corruption and the instability uh, that is present in Syria. And so, by making this statement, the Syrian ambassador to the UN is essentially saying that uh, you know all aid should come through us, and we will control who the aid gets to. And of course, uh, this is quite a problematic uh, issue because if they're the ones controlling the aid, you know, of course they're not. They are less likely to be giving the aid properly and in large amounts to, you know, where it's most needed in the northern rebel-held areas, um, and so on and so forth, that uh, is going to cause issues with, you know, you know, giving aid to that area. And uh, the, um, Sorry to give sorry. To, uh, to butt in. Um, playing devil, devil's advocate, um, you know, people here are probably in, in the West would say, you know, um, you know, this is a situation which we got to evaluate, right? We don't really want aid to go into the wrong, uh, wrong hands, so why should we be uh, trying uh, uh, why should we be sending aid when we can't establish who's going to get this uh, who's going to get this aid and who's going to deliver it mm. because at the end of the day uh, if we see um, previous situation aid can go uh, anywhere and you know that's why the UK has sort of um, even cut down on the international aid uh, fund f- funding as well mm. that's a good point but at the same time um, there's the argument that even if you know 20% of the aid gets through, that's still 20% of the aid that's helping people. So maybe it is worth the risk of kind of sending aid across and having some of it lost on the way. Um, but that's a very good point. Again, and that is the point. That is a question people are now asking. Um, and so I don't want to deviate too much from the from the topic before I get back to it. But the reason why humanity first other charities get around by this is that they work directly with the partners on the ground, and so you know they kind of they work to establish safe kind of ways of delivering aid. But anyway, going back to the point. The point is that there's only eight, in Damascus, the government only allows aid to enter area through one border crossing. And it's kind of not allowing aid to even travel to those areas. So now, again, like I said, this is creating bottlenecks in the delivery of aid to the area. So a lot of people have been focused on Turkey and the relief efforts there. And, you know, it, the majority of the earthquake did hit in Turkey. I think 18 million or 23 million people were affected by the earthquake. But the situation in Syria has the potential to be so much more devastating just because that the appropriate disaster response is not being uh, allowed to be uh, held over there. Even to the point that there's, for example, fuel shortage, power cuts, and, you know, general deprivation as well. And the fact that people were already living in camps rather than buildings, 
and so they literally have nowhere else to go to. And so there's a potential for the for this catastrophe to have a much bigger uh, multiplier effect in Syria rather than Turkey, for example. Even even recently, we've seen a cholera outbreak, um, which has impacted Syria as well. And this is you know the healthcare services are have been affected by the earthquake again. So um, we can see that. I mean, according to estimates, seventy percent of the population, uh, the United Nations say, require aid. And so really, this is a a very kind of a something that should be looked at. And again, the aid in that country, the the government and the United Nations have to work together to kind of establish you know different routes and different ways of communication. Perhaps you know temporarily saying that you know establishing two or three different routes into the area of Idlib uh, to ensure that aid can get there on time. Um, Again, this remains to be seen. So, sorry, the cream. Uh, I've got another question. So, uh, I was reading up uh, a few days ago that most mm. of the what you're talking right now is aid, is physical aid, where you know food supplies and blankets and all of these things they they get to the victims of this devastating uh, natural disaster. Uh, but w- what about financial aid? Because I've I've seen and I've read uh, that a lot of these uh, you know crowdfunding websites etc they've blocked hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, mm-hmm. to go to syria because of the uh, restrictions put upon syria so so, mm-hmm. so so how can they get around that so again that's interesting and the way that for example humanitarian organizations are working around that is by working essentially with local um jewelry partners on the ground now this is a system that was developed many years ago and system is that instead of going through official organizations and government-backed uh, charities, which may or may not have that aspect of corruption with them. What you do is there are local people on the ground or, you know, uh, prominent Syrians, you can say, in their communities who act as kind of uh, figureheads for aid to be sent to them. And what they do with that money, for example, is they then distribute it. So I'll give you an example that, uh, a charity, for example, uh, it costs about £30 or so to provide uh, food baskets for a uh, family in Syria, let's say, uh, for a month. And that includes like, 20, 10 kilograms of rice, 20 kilograms of oil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what would happen is that, say someone in the UK wants to donate to Syria, for example, they would send, let's say, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 families, let's say 3,000 pounds they would send across um, to that person. Uh, and then and this person would then organize the aid delivery, buy the items, buy them in the bags and so on and so forth, um, trademark it with the charity name if, if need be, and distribute amongst those people there. And so that is the kind of the, the underground way of doing it. And they would take, very, they wouldn't really, the person themselves, due to the kindness of their heart and so on and so forth, they wouldn't take any money or any part, any kind of, uh, you know, aid from that, um, or you'd hope not. But again, like I said, this is not, this is very risky on two hands because doing due diligence on, on a person or individual is a lot harder than, than a charity or an organization. But at the same time, that because of the way that the charity systems work in, in, in the Middle East, there is almost a less chance of, of corruption, a less chance of aid being lost if it's a person than it is an organization, which is a, a sad state of affairs. Um, but through many years or, or in, in the Middle East, you know, many charities and many organizations have found that this is the most effective way of working. Um, mm. Which again is not ideal, but that is how it's doing. Now, I'm not saying that people should go and individually find, you know, these people and these, these kind of uh, delivery partners to work with. What I'm saying is they should research the charities that they're giving money to and see how those charities are spending the money. If, they're giving, if their way of spending money is giving directly to the government or giving directly to you know, the big charitable organizations in Syria, um, then they might be better off looking at other organizations, for example, like Humanity First, you know, that could be working with, with local delivery partners instead.
especially when in a more efficient way. Is is it you know is this the case right now where charities have been re- uh, you know reluctant of giving aid towards the government uh, to the government in order to distribute and and if that is the case then you know as you know what 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 is the how, how can we get around that situation yeah absolutely i mean even due to the sanctions imposed by the united states um are impeding you know the the delivery of relief and aid um and kind of, they kind of hampering the progress of the country that sense and banks are still blocking can still block transfers to pay suppliers or or local workers or aid organizations um because they don't want to risk the uh, you know risk uh, breaking the sanctions but again there's no clear answer to this you know there's no uh, because of the political tensions and you know the fact that there's you know there's literally two governments in one country and and so on and so forth there's not unless the political situation is resolved completely we can't say for certain you know this is the best way of doing it or this is what's going to happen in the future that makes sense it's kind of as the months go by we hope that the UN are making progress with their with their what's it called um negotiations and consultations and you know hopefully like we saw in previous humanitarian disasters, there's usually a period of embargo. There's a period, there's a period where, you know, the, the United States may allow for sanctions to be lifted temporarily to relieve, to help humanitarian relief efforts. And you know, uh, that might we might see a breakthrough in communications between the rebels and the government, in which the the government is allowing more financial aid to be sent to the to the rebels. Um, but like I said, it's something that's going to have to be monitored and have to be worked out, you know, politically. And we hope that there is a, a good political resolution to this. Yeah, I think there's a lot of red tape uh, around this topic, really, uh, because if you know whatever your political views are, there is still a sort of a civil war aftermath in uh, in in Syria. And uh, I, I was just looking at a BBC map, uh, and it's really really difficult to see. And you can see the complexity around the issue uh, of uh, the situation in. Um, in northern Syria, because you have uh, Kurdish-led forces, the Syrian government, Syrian rebels, Turkish-backed Syrian rebels, and Turkish military, and the so-called jihadi forces, which of course is not the correct term to really use, uh, but that's the one being used. So there's really about six, uh, five, five, five groups in play in northern Syria, and hence why we're having this situation where um, countries have had to evaluate and take time in looking to send aid, be it uh, physical aid in terms of blankets and uh, spare clothes uh, or financial aid, because at the end of the day, um, Western countries such as uh, you know the, we- the Western countries mainly are taking the time because they want to uh, make sure that the aid goes directly to those who are affected and not uh, the ones um, who are um, just trying to essentially steal it. So it is a, a situation where we find ourselves in, and it's unfortunate that this is happening. Uh, but again, depending on your foreign policy uh, opinion, you could say, you know, it is the, it, it's the, it's the West who created this problem. But that, again, is for another topic, and we don't have Hamad here for, to go into deeply into that. Um, I want to go to Rahan, because Rahan, there's, uh, there was this um, unfortunate letter sent to as a, uh, in consequence to the earthquake uh, to to mosques um are you able to give us a rundown of that yeah umar and, and just to mention it's not just this letter this letter is the one that's made it onto the headlines mm. but I've, heard, I've seen other um examples of this kind of um i'd call it extremism from my point of view uh, from other places as well but what happened was that there's a mosque in london in uh, hackney actually and it's a turkish owned mosque 
So there's a lot of Turkish people that go pray there. So people who are actually actively affected and also supporting a lot to the victims in Turkey. So as far as I know, they've been um, they sent over 300 aid boxes to Turkey and Syria from that mosque. And they received an anonymous letter from someone that was posted to the mosque, which actually starts off, you read the top, it starts off with a greeting message, but then it turns very, very sinister all of a sudden. And this person who has written to the mosque is in a way celebrating the earthquake and the killing, uh, well, the, the death of these victims from the earthquake. And he mentioned things like um, he could not stop smiling. And he said that he wished there would be more deaths and that there are more Muslims that suffer, the better. Um, and things like that, you know, things that are obviously very, very hateful. Um, and I just can't imagine how a person could have so much hate in their heart. And this isn't the only case, actually. The MP, the Metropolitan Police, um, confirmed that there was another mosque in Stoke, uh, Newington, that also received a letter with racist and Islamophobic language. I also saw a... Um, this, wasn't covered, this hasn't been covered as much, but in Germany there were donations left outside the centre, which was supposed to be going to Turkey. And over the night, two arsonists came and they set the things on fire. And in the CCTV cameras, you could clearly see that they actually had grabbed the Turkey flag first, threw it in the pile, and then set it on fire. So obviously, clearly an act of hate um, and extremism coming out there. And there's a lot of debates going around as well um, whether Turkey and Syria deserve our donations, which is a social media debates have been happening. And some people have even been going, taking it above and beyond and saying that whether our money should be going to Ukraine or our money should be going to Turkey, which I don't think is the right comparison to make. I think the, the question should be is um, asking the government whether they're spending their money appropriately. I think that's more, that, that, make, that makes more sense rather than comparing which or who, what people of background deserve our money. So I think, I think these are things which are only cause damage in the long term. Um, and uh, I think we, we all know, we've all experienced what this is like, and uh, the selective um, humanitarianism is, it can be very damaging. Yeah, thanks, Ron. W- one more thing, you know, uh, I-, I was just thinking about this, was that uh, all these letters, well, this letter that, that you were talking about, which which was quite hateful, and it, it kind of shows where humanity has dropped to, in a way. Uh, you know, Usually, a human has sympathy towards another human when he's suffering, when he's going through a very difficult period of time. It doesn't matter if you know that person or you don't. If you're walking on the road and someone, you know, is very upset on the on the side of the road, you know, you try to console him. You ask him, you know, are you okay or not? But what we've been seeing, and and I'm not saying that this is just here, but I think it's it's globally, is where people have lost sympathy for each other. And that sympathy, uh, w- once you lose that, you know, it's it's an indication that, uh, you know, hu- humanity has lost faith in God Almighty or, or has not lost faith, but has has started to stop believing in God Almighty altogether. Uh, because I think I think when when you do have that, you know, that fear and that love for God Almighty, then you've got the love for humanity as well. And, and you know, it seems like we're going further away from humanity, from compassion, than, than we are going towards it. And and coming to that point, you know, uh, I was reading an article on Al-Hakam, 
um the weekly al hakam the other day and and it said uh, you know uh, about hazrat masimaud hazrat mirza ghulam and the promised messiah sallallahu salam where he said that you know that god has remained remained silent for a very long time and and that there were warnings uh, you know for the latter day messiah and and you know a very interesting uh, uh, statistics that they've mentioned is that in 2020 ecological threat register showed that you know the increase of uh, of the number of natural disasters has increased tenfold from the 1960s you know from from, from 39 incidents in 1960 to 396 in in 2019 you know umar i think i think you know that is substantial isn't it is it could that be related well that to a, to a layman i think uh, they would definitely be looking at that and be questioning but to us as uh, saying believers we can directly link that to the to the prophecy uh of you know what was going to happen in the latter days and to me that is already ast- astonishing because I, i i i didn't i wasn't aware of this really uh but of course having read the news only some of the uh, uh, natural disasters come into uh to um to news but you can see the the more significant ones even then you can see that oh you know you say to yourself oh god wow really this is this is happening but on your point of uh, humanity i think it only now extends to your own people rather than to people of different kind or you know someone let's say for instance you're you're german and i'm german i'll look after you but if you're from from another color or another nationality i'm not going to look after you because you're not one of my my people so i think this is the sort of mentality which is now starting to brew over and over and you can talk about it here in the uk as well right uh, you see in merseyside uh, a week ago people went up to an asylum center hotel where they were um housing them temporarily until you know the 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 case goes through the system uh, properly which is supposed to happen they go there the um uh, the far right and they start burning uh, a police van instead and you know go get into a fight really and there's people as young as 13 years old so you're talking about a young generation going towards uh, this uh, how this a hotel for asylum seekers and burning them, not not welcoming them but burning them and trying to intimidate them when they are already asylum seekers from another country where they have faced some sort of persecution for whatever reason they have come for and again if you talk about wider context of uh, political consequences this is of course a consequence of brexit in the uk directly but then even wider of that you talk about integration uh, uh, of of communities you know uh, fair enough that there have been uh, a lot of immigration policies here in the UK and wider Europe and uh, some political commentators say that it's not actually uh, the fact that we need to reduce um, immigration we need to start listening to the, the the general public that in fact they they want to have Uh, uh less immigration but the the politicians are just not delivering on it i i think umar you know the main point over here is is education mm-hmm. to be honest you know uh, m- most of these kids as you've said you know as young as 13 uh do you think they they know what they're doing why are they doing it i don't really think so it's it's difficult to put yourself in that position right but 
if you looking at a simple way, of course, right? Um, you know, you have your parents uh, bringing you up. I'm, I'm sure they came with it with, with their families or uh, close friends, and and if they've got nothing else to do, and you talk about the uh, importance of having family uh, cohesion and uh, believing in God, I guess at the end of the day, because uh, I can tell you from my understanding that they're probably not uh, believers in any sense or way, the other than trying to make the country great again, right? So it, it is true. Um, they, they they need education, and um, but I, I think the wider point also is that. Uh, the term of uh, integration in in society, yes, because um, you know you, you can't just expect someone to come into your house and not follow the rules. But yeah. you can't also expect uh, the person who is your host to act like that in in the same way. And yeah. that's where His Holiness, as a Muslim, Masurama, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has also alluded on many times, not just now, but even before the Brexit vote or even before um, stuff like this was coming up on the news. Right, so. Um, it's a point that we're now starting to discuss and uh, starting to realize, and only now you see the light where, where his home is. I think all of this brings us back to a very simple point, uh, w- which we most most of the times we just forget, is where the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, you know, mentioned that we have two, you know, two aspects that we have to look after. One is hukukullah, okay, and the second is hukukulibat, meaning the right of Allah, and the rights of of human beings, right? And 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 I agree with you because when I looked at those two things, because that was sort of you can say gunned down on me from the very first day. You know, I I understood that perfectly from the very first day. And to me, I could not do any of these actions without uh, going back to saying, you know, I need to, you know, these are something God has told us directly, you know, the rights of God and the rights of, of his people. Yeah. So how can you do anything of such uh, to anyone without believing in God and then these two being his rights that you, you know, go out and uh, and commit these sort of crimes against people yeah. and, you know, don't have sympathy, empathy or any, any sort of those uh, characteristics. And again, then... Again, it comes down to believing in God, right? Yeah. Because yeah. Um, at the end of the day, um, you know, religion, uh, religion, uh, in the broader aspect, religion, of course, uh, believes in the same thing. But in the wide, uh, in the more narrow context with uh, Islam, we of course come back to uh, uh, to God Almighty, believing in oneness and the togetherness yeah. of uh, communities and brotherhood I, as well. I, I think it all comes back, you know, a, a very simple saying and motto. We're going, we're going back and forth. It yeah. comes back. <laughs> a, 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 a very simple motto of of, of the community of of, yeah. of you know Hamadia is love for all, hate for none. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think if 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 every person you know, not only in the UK, around the world, everywhere globally, if, if everyone really truly believes in love for all, hate for none, I think. You know, I think ninety nine percent of the issues would just fade away. I wish, I wish that could happen, but uh, unfortunately, we're in a situation where uh, we have had to discuss this uh, topic, and you know, we're, we're not finished here yet, really, because you know, there's uh, wider issues around the world yeah. happening, and um, uh, we still have a show to go on with. So we will take a, a short break, and we'll be back uh, with another topic, uh, and uh, hopefully, you will join us then. So join us after a short break, my countrymen. A religion which does not inculcate universal compassion is no religion at all. Similarly, a human being without the faculty of compassion is no human at all. Our God has never discriminated between one people and another. 
This is illustrated by the fact that all potentials and capabilities which have been granted to the Aryans have also been granted to the races inhabiting Arabia, Persia, Syria, China, Japan, Europe and America. The earth created by God provides a common floor for all people alike and his sun and moon and many stars are a source of radiance and provide many other benefits to all alike. Likewise, all peoples benefit from the elements created by him such as air, water, fire and earth and similarly from other produce created by him like grain, fruit and healing agents etc. These attributes of God teach us the lesson that we too should behave magnanimously and kindly towards our fellow human beings and should not be petty of heart and illiberal. We live in the age of buttons, where a single button can order us a takeaway or signal the beginning of a nuclear war. At a time when the fabric of our society is ever-changing and ever-tearing, where nations are remodeled overnight and billions of dollars are lost in an instant, we are no doubt standing at a pit of uncertainty. With global suicide rates ever increasing and the threat of a third world war ever looming, our eyes strain for a solution to this epidemic of unrest. But one voice has spoken out in the darkness, addressing the global public and leaders of the world time and time again. A voice of reason, logic and the overwhelming power of truth. This voice, a beacon of light, exists in the visionary of this age. His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the global spiritual leader and guide for tens of millions of Muslims around the world. If we are to leave behind a legacy of hope for our children and bequeath a peaceful world to our future generations, we, respective of our religion, or beliefs need to urgently change our priorities. Instead of being consumed by materialism and a desire for power, every nation, whether rich or poor, must prioritize the peace and security of the entire world above all else. Instead of embarking on an arms race leading to death and destruction, we must join the race to save and protect humanity. Muhammad, the seal of the prophets, the final law-bearing prophet of God, whose advent was prophesied by earlier prophets of God, a claim made by millions of Muslims across the globe. But how true is this statement? Was this coming truly foreseen by prophets in the biblical scripture? What does the Bible say regarding the advent of the greatest prophet of God? Read Muhammad in the Bible by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad Anhu, the second successor of the promised Messiah Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life here with myself Umar Bhatti and my co-host Ishan Kanun and um, uh, Takreem Malik joining us remotely. We just had a uh, great uh, discussion, well, uh, a great in the sense that we were able to delve into and come up with a sort of conclusion as to, you know, why problems are taking place um, around the world and why there's been a slow uh, movement towards getting aid or financial or physical aid towards Syria and uh, Turkey. But now we want to talk more around um, a bit of football. And um, 
you know, uh, we know we have two fans here, me being a Chelsea fan, and we have uh, uh, Zishan, who's a, a, a Arsenal fan. And uh, I think we need to start with Arsenal because uh, we were talking <laughs> about a team who was who was on the top of, uh, top of the league and was... Uh, can I say right well, there, well, well, I think we have to take a step back, okay? <laughs> we still have a game in hand and we're playing at, two, at 12.30 today. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully we'll be back on top of the league. Uh, but if, for all the listeners, uh, I don't think, you know... You, you, you can see how Umar is dressed today. <laughs> he's he's fully dressed in his football kit, ready to you know, ready for his match at one thirty, aren't you? I, I, I am indeed, and uh, I'll be following um, not the Arsenal way, but I'll be following uh, Chelsea's uh, uh, impeccable defence. Bar, bar oh, oh, oh really? Like, like, like a few days ago, how uh, Kareem Adeyemi scored against Kepa. I think, I think is is that what's going to happen to you today? No, well, it could happen because uh, our team's unfortunately not doing well. Oh. But we don't have the money to buy the Spurs players either. So I wish we did have Todd Bowley in our in our in our bank account. But but you're still eleventh. We are, we are, we are something around that because I've started to lose uh, track <laughs> and a bit of hope. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, if we're talking about Chelsea and you want to come at Chelsea, the thing is we are at a rebuilding stage. And we're not at any rebuilding stage, right? We're a club rebuilding stage. We've had a new owner um, from the start of the season. And we, of course, well, not the start of the season, from uh, mid- midway through. <laughs> yeah. That completely shook us all. So, um, if anything, there needs to be huge sympathies with Chelsea right now that uh, we're going through a whole rebuilding phase and trying to re-identify our um, uh, sort of uh, identity under Todd Bowley. So it's going to take time. I understand that the figure that we've spent is a bit quite excessive for some players who I don't even know myself. Um, some of them are being loaned out and then coming back. Some of them uh, recently, one of the Brazilian guys, is he's, he, he, he lost his immigration status. Well, not immigration, he lost his... Um, uh, right to work permit here by one point again apparently so he's looking to play somewhere else for the remainder of the season oh, wow. so uh, at this moment we're t- taking time we're taking well, um, Umar to be honest I don't think any <clears throat> fan that watches Premier League has any sympathy towards uh, towards Chelsea now, now now, the reason why I'm saying that and and you know the the where I want this conversation to go is towards ownership and you know what we've been seeing in the in the Premier League especially is you know these owners just throwing money around and now you know the news coming out that uh, Manchester United is being bought by Qatar uh, you know, an, another state-owned, state-owned indeed. Yeah. So, w- w- what's going to happen? I mean, that is a go- whoever gets Man United. I think that's going to be a big thing. And uh, if the Qatari owners or the Qatari state uh, people do get it, uh, then <laughs> it's going to be all hell, uh, hell basically there because they're going to be dropping money like it's changed. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be another PSG project slash Chelsea project. Uh, slash slash city city slash Newcastle. Well, Newcastle spending a bit wisely, to be honest. Yeah, but uh, it, it's going to be mental because it could we could see an end to the misery United are having uh, because they do need to spend a bit big. But the argument is that they they have been spending big, but they've been recruiting in the wrong area. Yes, but could we see an end to, to the Premier League? 
competition because then well, you've got yeah. three, four very big clubs mm. that have, you know, you, 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 I, I don't think we can imagine how much resource they will have. No, that is true. That is true. I did not think about that, actually. W- w- will it be difficult for, you know, for somebody like Arsenal, even Chelsea? I, I, I don't think Todd has unlimited amount of money, but yeah. Ch- Arsenal, mm. Chelsea... You know Tottenham. Well, Tottenham was never in the frame. You just brought them into the conversation. But do you know what I mean? Do you know where I'm coming from? I do because it's going to be tough for all of them, especially if we look at the discrepancy between the top and bottom. Right? Yeah. You even need to just need to look at the wage slips from the bottom, from the top, and it's quite huge. And then you, you know, we talk about the change in the game, and you know. New teams, you know, promotions, uh, teams coming up, and then trying to stay because you know, you know, when you get promoted, your first uh, first season is to try and try, try and to stay remain, up, try yes. to remain, and then yeah. then build onto it. And then yeah. it's going to be difficult to do that when you know we ha- you have a billion dollars or pounds in your bank account versus maybe thirty, forty, max hundred million, which yes. which in ten years or uh, 20, 20 years used to be a lot, but now it's just nothing. It you nothing. can't you can't buy anyone. With that sort of price, really, unless you find a gem, which uh, Brighton, you, you have oh. done, Southampton have done in the past. Brighton. Um, which other teams are there to shout out at? Um, yeah, I think those are the two really who have uh, bought in. I, I, I think I think Brighton has been amazing this season, though. Yeah, because Kaiseido, Mitoma, and those are all signings by Graham Potter's uh, staff, uh, which they're benefiting from. Yes, and hence why he, now that he's come to Chelsea, the same project is going to happen, where we're going to find gems. Uh, well, well, we'll have to see you, man. <laughs> we'll have to see. If, if there's one thing I'm certain about, is Graham Potter staying and he's not getting fired for at least uh, two seasons, I think, um, as much as there is, because I think Todd Bodie won't be the same guy as Roman Abramovich. And um, there's definitely the same sort of mentality to win trophies, but I think he, he himself understands that he has a wider project, which is to try it, and build clubs around the world into this Chelsea ownership group. Uh, Todd Bodio, just like the City City Group, really. That's what he wants to do at the end of the day. But more less about Chelsea because you've been trying to gun <laughs> down on me. More about Arsenal. What's happening in the last five games? Yeah, it's it's been horrible. I I, I don't know why. Since the restart, I, it, it has. I, I I I'm not sure. I, I I think you know we versus Everton. It was quite quite difficult for us. Yeah. Then then we had the manager bounce back. Uh, you know, mm. you know, obviously, yeah, yeah. and then we had Brentford. Have you seen Ivan Tony? He's huge. He is. He's huge. He is. And and it's very difficult to defend against him. And then, uh, but you know what? I was at the match against City. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> okay, I, I I went to watch Arsenal against City, and uh, the atmosphere. Oh, the atmosphere was amazing. I have to say, and and the way Arsenal played, I think it was it was phenomenal. But but I I think most of the Arsenal fans would agree is that even even at the beginning of the season that we we knew that we did not have the squad to compete. Mm-hmm. Look, w- one injury party is out, mm. and our team kind of fell. Gabriel apart. Jesus, Gabriel Jesus, that's it. You, you you see, it makes a huge difference. Mm. And City, their team is just phenomenal. Like Liverpool, at the height of Liverpool, the players they had, they couldn't compete against City, and they did have some amazing players, didn't mm. they? It's uh, it's going to be interesting because uh, really, a team does not lose um, number one position when you are at um, uh, Christmas time. You yeah. Know? So, 
and even halfway through the season you were still you are still you were you were still first so it's um it's interesting i think only um but i i think we still have we still have quite a few games yeah, yeah there is there is still it's... a few, few games to go so i think we can uh, put that safely down that let's see how what happens not out yet but uh, it's Scary. I, I think it's scary times for Arsenal fans. I, I, Just because I, you don't want this to repeat, because you know, back in the day, you used to have the top four scare. Uh, will you be able to? Make, well, you used to. Go, you guys always used to make top four, but you know, were you able to always push for it? Yes. So, um, yes. Yeah, this is your. I, I, I think a title race. It's it's like anything else mm. uh, in the world. You know, it's it's not that it's going to be decided in one day. No. It's it's a long procedure. Uh, it's you, you you have to be consistent. Yeah. And that's where you need the squad depth. Yes. And that's where Arsenal are lacking a bit. Yes. And uh, Chelsea's overcompensating. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let, let's end it there. <laughs> let, let, let's end it there before we get into a fight. Uh, but join us after uh, a short uh, news break for 11 o'clock. And we'll be back to talk about something other than Chelsea and Arsenal and the Premier League. Oh, and, and I'm sorry to say... But uh, our our third host, our third co-host, the Cream, he's yeah. a Liverpool fan. Oh, and and for his sake, I, I think you know, may may maybe we we should come back to football maybe. next month. <laughs> <laughs> maybe by then, some the Cream will will have something s- to talk some about. Strong jabs being thrown around <laughs> in the room, but yes, we will let the Cream join. But let's go for a short break. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Saturday Morning Life. Your job myself, Umar Badi, and my co-host, Sishan Galoon, and the Green Malik joining us remotely. Just had a sort of a conversation around football uh, for the past 10 minutes, but we're back uh, trying to move on with the uh, conversation around... Um, <clears throat> A sort of science of uncertainty, which uh, Takrim will introduce to us. But if you want to take part and join in in the conversation, you can on 0208 687 7878, or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, Takrim, uh, tell us a bit about this uh, topic. Of course. Now, as um, I was uh, reading something on the internet this week, I was just having a browse of all the journals and so on and so forth. I came across this, this very. Um, interesting article on the science, the neuroscience of uncertainty and how we can use it to make better decisions, uh, published in Science Focus magazine. So essentially, to summarize this, there was a few studies done uh, with mice and with humans in UCL, and they were trying to work out um, the role of this uh, neurotransmitter called noradrenaline. And noradrenaline, among with dopamine and acetylcholine, are kind of the, the chemicals in our brains that kind of, uh, you know, are used to make decisions. Um, essentially, any kind of actions we do emotionally, physically, a lot of them are kind of carried out through these neurotransmitters. And, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, our, our brain, our imagination, our free will, all this kind of stuff, this is essentially all due to chemicals, and these are the chemicals involved. Anyway, um, the experiment they did was um, they had a lever, that's a mice, and they put them in a box with a lever. And when a high frequency was played, and the mice push down the lever, um, then you know, they get a reward, they get like, a drink of water or something, right? And when a low frequency was sound was played and they press the lever, they'd have like an unpleasant puff of air. And they'd also have a third frequency, which is in between, which is neither high nor low, it's a bit of a confusing one. Um, and so they could either have the drink of water or the puff of air with that third sound. 
and essentially what they found out was through experiment doing doing experiment a lot of times was that um the the areas area of the brain uh which uh, regulates the release of noradrenaline um this was very very key in understanding uncertainty because uh when the frequency was less clear and you know the reward wasn't as expected there was a much larger release of noradrenaline from that one area um, rather than when there was uh, the frequency was high and they knew they wouldn't get the reward. Um, but on the other hand, the mice were also less likely to push the, to, the lever and take action if the uh, uncertainty was higher. And so these are the two main conclusions they came to, that when there's uncertainty, we are less likely to do something. But when that uncertainty is, is gone away and, and you know we have a positive outcome, then we have a much greater release, uh, a reward release, that makes sense. Two very interesting points there. Um, and they did this experiment again with humans, uh, like I said, with, with acetylcholine and, and dopamine and so on and so forth. And they're trying to work out basically that, you know, what is going on here. And the, the principle they kind of came to basically, I, I won't make it too long, is that firstly, like I said, humans are scared of uncertainty. That's one thing to, to, to establish. And the second thing is that uh, humans are much more likely to respond uh, to loss, um, to negative outcomes than positive outcomes. And they're like, and if they're uncertain about something and something negative happened because of that uncertainty, that would almost scar them almost uh, for a lot longer and have a much longer lasting effect than if there's a positive outcome. Um, so essentially that, that fear of uncertainty is not just restricted to um, you know, that uncertainty, it's restricted to even beyond that as well. And it's almost saying that if you're uncertain of something and something bad happens, then you almost automatically assume next time that something bad will happen again. And it's also preconditioning uh, yourself even further to to fear the uncertainty, um, if that's if I'm making sense. Um, so I was having to think about this, and I thought this was very interesting. But uh, it kind of I was wondering, what is Islam's perspective on this? What does Islam say about uncertainty? Because it's all well and good um, explaining terms of chemicals and saying that humans are innately scared creatures, basically. Um, but what does Islam have to say about this? And I remembered actually um, a principle of science, uh, which is the Heisenberg principle. Um, it's a very famous kind of uh, theoretical principle. And it basically says that, I'm um, summarizing here, but it says that uh, you either know, um, uh, sorry, the Heisenberg principle, is that we either know like exactly where something is in space or we know uh, how fast it's going. We can't know both at the same time. So we, we know either the position of, an, of a particle or we know the velocity. We cannot know both at the same time with absolute precision. And this is a principle that was, you know, formulated years ago. And it's essentially, it summarizes the, the science of uncertainty for me um, and limits our knowledge as humans, basically. But then, in the Islamic perspective, I'll have a look at this. And I came across a very interesting article that explains how this, in, this topic of uncertainty and uncertainty in humans uh, is kind of, you know, a way of, of life, a way of thinking as well. Um, and how we can combat that by saying that actually, if we humans are uncertain and we're scared of uncertainty, then who do we turn to when we are faced with that fear? It's God. The cream. Um, sorry, is is that? Uh, are you coming towards? I'm, I'm not sure uh, about this topic. You know, I, I don't know very much about this neuroscience. It's the first time I've been hearing what you're saying, but it seems like you're coming towards um, the topic is Islamically. What we've been taught. Uh, especially when I was studying, and and you know uh, we had a lot of focus towards ilmal yakin, ainul yakin, and hakul yakin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the yakin, you know, the the certainty. 
Mm. Uh, is 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 that kind of related? Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to go into. And the sounds you have much more greater Islamic knowledge than me, so you can perhaps um, discuss with me and enlighten me on certain aspects as well. Um, but essentially, it was it was taking the example of the, of the seven sleepers of Ephesus. Um, the story that I mentioned in Surah Kahf about uh, how you know it's in the Quran that there was three of them, the fourth being their dog, and then some will say there were five and six of them being their dog. And then someone said there were seven and eight was their dog. And that kind of, uh, the uncertainty in there, as established in the Quran, you know, is showing that it's an innate part of human nature, for example. Um, but if you want to expand more on the topic of Yakin, please do. No, I, 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 I was just, you, you know, the, the topic that you've just touched, where mm-hmm. God Almighty, you know, mentions if it was three or if it was four or five and the, you know, the, Fourth, fifth, sixth was the dog or not? But I, I, I think God Almighty just d- d- doesn't answer that, does he? He, he, no. he, he, he just ends that debate by not answering it. It's essentially, it's, again, literally, the Quran ends that uh, debate by saying that, "Say surely, uh, say, O Muhammad, my Lord is most knowing of their number." And that is the point that I wanted to come across: is that as humans, we are uncertain. But the one person who does not have that uncertainty. Or the one person who has that certainty um, is Allah the Almighty, and from that is what I took away from from this Islamic incident. That Allah the Almighty is actually teaching us to to be aware of uncertainty, to acknowledge that uncertainty, but essentially to leave in the hands of God. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I I think so, Umar. You know this uncertainty kind of you know it's it's fascinating to be honest. Uh, what God Almighty says that that. He, the way he said it in Surah Al-Qaf and, and he just ended the debate uh, saying that you know he is the all-knowing and, and we do not know but we as human beings we still push ourselves to kind of get to the closest certainty as possible no? I, I 100% agree um, you know this is the, this is one of the f- fundamental things about uh, believing in, in God really um, you know knowing Taqwa, you know, having having um, know, knowing that God Almighty will have your back, and that you know you leave things uh, to Him. And uh, to 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 a normal person who isn't a believer, it may seem quite strange, and even uh, you know whatever they want to call it. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's what makes our belief so strong that uh, we know that uh, we 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 know what the what God Almighty's powers are, and uh, we know that He's mentioned numerous times that He He is the best of planners. So we should just leave it in, into His own hands. And so, at the end of the day, um, when we are in a situation where we are uncertain, I guess the only way we come out with it is just to pray uh, fervently uh, for certainty. I guess right for yeah. certainty. But at the end of the day, we still won't know whether that will happen until we see an end result, right? Yes. And that's the beauty of it. But I, th- I, th- I think, I'm sorry, but Umar, I think, I think you're missing one point there. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think, you know, where the cream is coming from and, you know, the science aspect of all of this and then having the faith in God Almighty, mm-hmm. like you said, you pray to God Almighty mm-hmm. and, and, you, and you have that belief that, you know, that God Almighty will give you the best but at the same time, you do your research and 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 you push yourself uh, to to broaden your your horizons, mm. you know, to learn more. It, 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 you know, it's a perfect balance. You know, what do you think, the game about this? Absolutely, and honestly, it sounds like you read my mind because the very next thing that I'm about to say is that you know, 
Tawakkal Allah and Taqwa is so important as well. But we take the hadith, and very interesting hadith. Hazrat uh, Ibn Malik uh, reported that a man said, O Messenger of Allah, should I tie my camel and trust in Allah, or should I leave it untied and trust in Allah? And the Prophet said, Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, Tie her and trust in Allah. Yes. Now, this is for me essentially, this is the essence of, of uh, Taqwa, Taqwa Allah, which is taking meaningful actions to achieve our goals, but again, with the understanding. That our actions guarantee nothing. There's always that uncertainty that our actions will mean nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, the rope will only keep the camel in place if Allah the Almighty wills it, and uh, you know that is the unseen that we have, we do not have access to. So essentially, we can be certain only of uncertainty. Um, but this should give us confidence, not not fear. And that is, I think, where when I was reading that trial, I was thinking that, okay, they've done this trial. They they said that humans are innately scared. Okay, but where's the solution? Science is not giving a solution. In the article, it said that we have to train our brains to become less fearful of this. But how? The answer lies in Quran. And again, this small example for me, you know, again, it shows me the beauty of science and religion, how science and religion work together. Science is showing us that, okay, you know, innately we are scared, for example, but it does not offer us any tangible solutions. Whereas religion, again, takes that scientific principle, explains it beautifully, but then also gives us a solution. The solution is that we trust in Allah the Almighty. And, you know, I've seen this time and time and time again. I'll give you a small example. Um, I've said this in a million times, but when I was, you know, applying uh, for university um, and, you know, choosing future career paths and so on and so forth, you know, I really wanted to go to Jamia Ahmadiyya, which is the, the missionary training school um, for Ahmadi uh, missionaries. And uh, my parents and, you know, in school as well, they, they wanted me to go through something more science-based, you know, maybe biomedicine, maybe medicine. Um, and I was uncertain. As in, I didn't know what to do. I was genuinely conflicted. Because, you know, this is a decision that would impact the rest of my life, I, I, you know, was a quite a big decision to make, and I had no idea. Um, uh, and so I went to the, the, the caliph, the leader of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, may God be his helper. And, you know, I, I prayed, of course, myself as well. And, uh, you know, I asked him, you know, you know I, I asked him for his advice, I asked him what he wanted me to do. And he said, do medicine. And I was very surprised because, you know, I was assuming that, incorrectly, of course, that, you know, his holiness might say, go to, for example, the missionary school. Um, and I was, maybe in my heart, I was hoping for that as well, really. But once that decision was made, and that decision was not made by, by one person alone, bear in mind. This is, for me, it's, it's a for example, it's a, it's a figurehead of, of prayers um, that was making that decision. Um, that, in my mind, that uncertainty was removed from me. And that was due to prayers and by almost God himself, if that makes sense. Um, and I knew then that my journey towards the end of my life was not dictated by my actions alone. I had that doubt in my mind whether I'd pick the right career or not. That would no longer be there because that uncertainty was removed by I love the Almighty. And that is one very small personal example of where I accepted the uncertainty, um, but then I found the solution through religion, uh, through spirituality, and I found the answer to my uncertainty. Who knows if I had chosen my own career path, how, how, what regrets I would have had. I would have spent my whole life thinking maybe I should have done this, maybe I should have done that. Um, but, with that decision being made for me, essentially, um, through religion, uh, I was able to, you know, you know, have that certainty. You, you, you know, Takrim, it's it's quite fascinating what you just told us. B- basically, what I've taken from this Umar is that Takrim uh, was, was in an uncertainty. And religion, you know, religion, what, what I mean by religion is having faith in God Almighty kind of mm-hmm. given, gave him that assurity you know of of the of the decision that he made now looking at that 
you know, if you just take a step back, you look at it, and and you could say that it could be the other way around. That when you're in uncertainty, okay, that science, you know, knowledge of the world generally could could help you with the uncertainty in a way. But I believe, as you know, uh, as 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 the listen as the listeners and you know, Umar and Takrim, both of you know that I'm I'm a missionary. My my fundamental belief is that you know, believe in God Almighty always gets you over the line, or, 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 or always has that edge over everything else. And 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 you know, for that you, you don't have numbers. As, as as in, I don't have numbers. Oh, God Almighty, help me! Certain, you know, certain, <laughs> yeah. in, c- certain times, etc. But yeah, but it's 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 just through experience, exactly. But w- w- what my what my point is is that both of them complement each other. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think I see your point there. I think I see your point because at the end of the day, um, you, you just need that satisfaction from your heart that yeah. you've made that you, someone has made that right or you've made that right decision, and you can only do that through continuous prayer because if you just um you know just go with you know flingo like, all right this is what i'm doing you haven't thought through it right yes but with prayer you're putting yourself in that situation or into that mentality that uh, i'm sure there's some science behind this maybe they can tell us where pr- prayer comes into this but with continuous prayer, you put, put yourself in that mentality where you're thinking about it and then where god almighty then helps you uh, guide you through that path and gives you some signs, even very minute signs, the ones you may not see. Yep. Uh, and I, I, I think I see your point there. Yeah. And it's very essential that people uh, don't always look at through the uh, lens of science, but look at it through a lens of a believer and uh, someone. Do it together. Do yeah. it together, yeah. yes. I, I, I think you know, even myself and, and the cream would be able to help with that. I, I, I always want a surety through numbers as well. Do, 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 do you know where I'm coming from, the cream? Yeah, absolutely. Now, <clears throat> again, your points are, are more than valid and so so very helpful. And again, the comments kind of almost lead naturally into my next point that I was making is that I wanted to build on this, on this topic. Like, like I said, yes, you're right. Numbers do give us some sort of certainty. But like I said, you know, one of the basic principles of science, the Heisenberg principle, itself t- tells us that we can never be sure of the position and the velocity at the same time. Essentially, science is saying that uncertainty is part and part of the universe. That's what the Heisenberg principle is. Um, so, to what level can we trust science, and to what level can we say that good science we have all the numbers? When, for example, with many emotional aspects, for example, we can't we can't um, we can't put emotion into numbers. For example, we can't stay on the, we can't wake up one day and say I'm, I'm feeling seventy five percent happy. Or I'm feeling twenty five percent sad. That's not how science works. Science loses its legs, loses its uh, sense of, of uh, realness when it comes to emotions and and kind of non non number non number of aspects of the world. Um so, you know, don't you think that it's better that the way that religion explains it, that is almost a complete way of, of, of completing the jigsaw. Science gives half the jigsaw with the numbers, but the other half is is is, is completely invalid. Yeah, yeah, I I I do. I I actually think, you know, um uh cream that to a certain extent you, you said that it's half half but i really think you know science only gives you about 20 30% and and then the rest is actually believing in god because i i, I don't think we've we've uh, fully comprehended what this world is and how everything works 
No, certainly. I think um, <clears throat> you just need to go around exploring the world, really, right? Um, uh, you know, I'm sure it says it's in the Quran or it's Islamically, you can correct me. But, you know, if you want to really believe in God, go look at the wonders of the world, right? Yes. And um, I just need to go back to one of the things we did together, which was the uh, uh, Ride for Peace uh, to Sheffield yes. through Wales. I never seen wells be that beautiful but when you look at the mountains we were going through well mountains hilly areas yes which were pr pretty much mountains because you know we're going through national parks yeah. uh cycling above um uh the sky technically with you know uh with the low low clouds it really made you feel and question you know this can't have been displaced um uh you know accidentally because there must have been something behind it yeah. and the beauty of it and that's that, that's why you know we get to do things like this where or that's where god presents you the opportunity to go around the world look at different cultures you know look at different things and really you then only then when you start communicating with that and understand the message you're able to say you know what there must be there has to be something behind this uh, and uh, that's where you, you know you become stronger and stronger i i i think Omar, it all it comes back and and you, uh the cream you know I'm, i just mentioned at the beginning of this topic it, it, it was ilm and haqqul yaqeen you know ilm means you know having the knowledge of something yeah so 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 you had the knowledge for example of yes there should be a god yeah all right Th th then comes the next stage of enolikin that is by seeing, seeing yeah, yeah? and and the you know you saw the beauty of wales yeah, the, the beauty of the world oh, well, okay yeah really. yeah mm -hmm. in, in reality and and then is the final stage where you said okay hakolikin you know i fully believe mm. that you know there is god and 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 there's something out there R right the Exactly, and I think you've, you've explained this so so well and so so beautifully. I can't I can't do any more justice to it. Um, and that essentially, you know, for, for our listeners, um, understanding this concept, I think, is so so important um, from a Islam point of view and from a human point of view, really. Um, and to add a little bit more about the human aspect of this, and we have talked about certainty and yaqeen and and taqwa and and all these things, but in practical terms, what does it mean? Well, I have an interesting take on this. Um, as part of my, my mental school, uh, we were going on mental health placements uh, every other week. Um, and so that means spending time in acute psych wards and community mental health hospitals as well. And so we've been learning a lot more about, uh, you know, mental health conditions and, and so on and so forth. In fact, I recently, I recently gave a presentation to some of my peers on the different types of mental health conditions, uh, common ones, for example, PTSD, social anxiety, panic disorder, um, generalized anxiety disorder, for example. And I don't want to <clears throat> generalize too much. I don't want to you know, be given a diagnosis or that kind of stuff. I'm not a medical professional yet. <clears throat> but when I was researching generalized anxiety disorder, the key thing that kept popping up again and again is the fact that in, in GAD, as you call it, in, in normal anxiety, you can just call it, there is that fear of uncertainty once again. It's that, that fear, anxiety, that knot in, that, in your stomach uh, when you go out somewhere new, is that knot when you see something on the news pop up it's that not when a number calls you. It's that uncertainty that you don't know what's about to happen. Right? Um, but again, it's that fear of uncertainty, which neuroscience explained, is innate within us, but it's almost magnified uh, so much more in people with, for example, GAD and anxiety. And so I was thinking, what is, what is the solution to this? And medically, very interestingly, the number one treatment, the first line treatment for this is uh, what we call lifestyle changes, right? Um, it means being more aware 
of your surroundings, uh, being more aware of the things that might trigger you, and trying to avoid them, for example. And the number two step is psychotherapy, which is something called CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And what a therapy essentially does is it teaches you to rethink the way you think. And it teaches you to kind of, when something happens, an event happens, when an event is about to happen, or you feel scared, is to change the way your brain is thinking, for example, to change the path of those neurotransmitters emitters I mentioned at the start, that noradrenaline, the dopamine, and acetylcholine. It's to train your brain to not automatically flood your, flood your brain immediately with all these transmitters and cause a sense of panic. It's to train, train yourself to think rationally and think, actually, this is what's happening. I should not be panicking or I should not be feeling anxious to feel this way. And this is so ties in so well with this principle because if we think about it really, this whole principle of Allah is a form of CBT, really, for me, in my opinion. This is just my opinion, I'm just saying. And this is a way of us retraining our brain and essentially putting all our fears and our anxiety and the way we think, sorry, not anxiety, the way we think upon Allah the Almighty. Because if we think that we are not in control of the situation, the only person that's in control is Allah the Almighty, then naturally we are going to be less fearful of that. It's a principle, actually, that was uh, termed by Nicholas uh, Taleb, someone uh, who's quite vocal on Twitter. But essentially he termed this uh, phrase called anti-fragility um, in a book called Anti-Fragile. And he says that resilience is you know, the ability to, to bounce back from uh, any severe uh, event that happens. But resilience is a very kind of a one-way thing, right? Something happens, you bounce back and that's it. Anti-fragility is going beyond that. It's when something bad happens to you, you learn from it and you get better and you get even stronger for next time, right? And again, this is a very Islamic concept. In Islam, we're taught that trials happen. Even the most righteous uh, are trials and uh, are printed with trials and to mention the Quran and the Hadith time and time again. <clears throat> so it's this principle that these trials, if you're righteous, that doesn't mean you won't go through trials. In fact, you might go through more trials. But the point is that you should become anti-fragile. You should learn from each trial and become even better. And so all these things combined together um, are essentially a way in which Islam is very is teaching rudimentary CBT or is kind of changing the way we think, you know, every stage of our lives really. And if only, you know, we, we look into this more detail in a more detailed way, we look at this topic, we realize that for all these conditions and for all these treatments that we're thinking of now, you know, therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, desensitization therapy and all these kinds of therapies that are being uh, used nowadays, Islam has, you know, kind of uh, started this or kind of explained to this, you know, 1400 years ago. Um, and that is just something that I found really, really interesting that all of this, all of this science is linked to Islam. And all sciences, all Islamic science as well. That was a very uh, insightful topic, a very good discussion we had. Uh, thank you for that, Dagreem, for bringing this topic. Um, uh, I think uh, we'll take another short break uh, now. And uh, remember, you can call us on 0208 or you can tweet us at Voice Islam and share your opinions on the discussions we've had in the past. And uh, afterwards, we're going to be talking a bit about a pastor who tried to fast for 40 days and uh, see where we take that conversation. So join us after a short break and we're back with uh, another topic. What is peace? Is it the simplicities in life or something exquisite? To some, it is vague. To some, explicit. To wake in a world wishing peace would just visit. A deafening society wishing someone would just listen. Is it higher power that will bring this world new navigation? Or is it acts of kindness that will refresh our imagination? I see powerless minds in search for reconciliation. 
who vote for justified masterminds who need no persuasion. Freedom of speech may be a thing of the past. Society pressures have us thinking. Why we even ask? We've been silenced because of the colour of our skin. We've begun to believe that believing in God is a sin. What is peace? We ask today. A way of life. A feeling. Long way away. Who have we wronged to deserve this rubble? Who did we question? Who gave us this trouble? We have no shelter. We have no peace. With the one thing we had, it brought us to streets. Caught in selfish acts, money, power and greed. Who needs food when we no longer have children to feed? Where is the justice? Where is our say? Peace is what we ask for. Yet, there is more blood to pay. A new term in power. A video game for the fearless kind. A new six-figure salary. Who has a new house in mind? We are asked today, what is that you preach? Please look in our eyes. No need to question beliefs. You fear one religious mind could change the world. Fearless in thinking one bomb. And problem solved? Please, justify the injustice. Stand up from your seat. We are not asking for much. We just ask justice for peace. He claimed to be that lost one, awaited by all major fates of the world. He claimed to be that Krishna that Hindus were waiting so long for. He claimed to be that Buddha about whose coming the previous Buddha had prophesied. He was that Jesus son of Mary awaited by both Christians and Muslims alike. He said he was the great reformer predicted by Guru Baba Nanak as well as the second coming of Zoroaster. He said that his mission was to bring all mankind to the realization that there is a God. He sought to bring about revolutions inside people so that they would fulfill the rights of each other as well as fulfill the rights of God. Now, just who was he? He was the Messiah of mankind, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Ghadian, and he was not a liar. 1400 years ago, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of God be upon him, claimed that the promised Messiah of all faiths would appear to the east of Damascus. It is recorded in writing that around 100 years ago, this Messiah, sitting in an unknown, undeveloped Indian village, which lay on the same latitude to the east of Damascus, no less, received the following revelation in the Arabic language, Bala Dimash, meaning destruction in Damascus. He prophesied the First and Second World Wars, and he also predicted that a great war would start from here. It is no secret that the Syrian civil war is the biggest crisis of our time. A conservative estimate states that over half of a million people have been killed since the Syrian civil war started in 2011. However, the number is sure to be significantly higher. 
Similarly, it is estimated that 11 million Syrians have fled the country since the war began. The pre-war population has been estimated to be 22 million. With different factions on the ground, including American, Russian, and Syrian government troops, Syrian rebels, and ISIS, this has become an international arena of death, a de facto playground for world war. Although world war and the crisis in Syria are signs of his truthfulness, the promised Messiah abhorred bloodshed and violence and instead claimed that he had come to end religious wars. He said that he loved mankind with the same love that a mother loves her child, nay, even more so. What mother would not sacrifice her own peace and well-being for the sake of her child? So, one can only imagine how much the promised Messiah loved mankind. An expression of his love are his timeless words which he desired to be a means of salvation for those he loved, that is, all of humanity. It is a fire, but all those shall be saved from that fire who love God, the doer of wonders. to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. You're joining us with my co-host Zushan Kaloon and we are now taking it to the final stretch, the last 20 minutes or odd left and uh, we're going to entertain you sort of with a, with a sort of a unfortunate news but something which people should not attempt really uh, without um, proper research um, and you can get involved and tell us maybe he, he was right to do this and uh, tell us a bit about the human body how it will cope uh, with fasting for 40 days uh, you can call us on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK uh, and I'm not sure how uh, you came across uh, to this uh, com- uh, this uh, article but Mozambique pastor dies attempting 40 day Jesus fast. So a pastor in Mozambique, of course, uh, tried to fast for 40 days. And of course, in the Bible, it says that Jesus fast for 40 days, 40 nights. And unfortunately, uh, he, uh, not uh, the pastor, whose name is uh, Francisco Baraja, uh, died in the hospital barra. He lasted, um, it doesn't actually say how, how long it was, but after 25 days of without food and water, he had lost weight to the point where he could not stand up. Uh, he died aged uh, 39 and he was taken to hospital immediately and um, they tried to rehydrate him, uh, put a bit of liquor, uh, liquid into his, f- f- uh, into his system, uh, foods as well. But uh, Wednesday, 
uh, late Wednesday, he, he passed away. And uh, it's not actually the first time this has happened in uh, Mozambique or around the world. People have attempted this in the past as well. Uh, and um, back in 2015, a Zimbabwean man had died after 30 days, uh, local media uh, reported. And in 2006, uh, a British British coroner found a woman had died halfway through a similar fast in London. So really, it's not the first time people are trying this. But I guess people are just trying to challenge themselves and talk about fasting. Uh, Ramadan is coming uh, very soon as well. So yes. this is sort of uh, in the right direction. Um, really, can we fast for 40 days without food and water? Well, I think this news tells you you can't, can you? No. Well, the, 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 first of all, Umar, uh, I love the way you introduced this topic. Okay, you really, you know, you kept the listeners <laughs> in the suspense, you know. <laughs> it took you a good minute to introduce this topic, yeah. but yeah, well done. <laughs> it's one but, of our specialties. Yes. <laughs> what, 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 this, 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 uh, this news, this news that I read, Omar, it really caught my eye. Mm. Because, you know, fasting for 40 days without food or drink is, how can someone think about that? Well, like, unless you're trying to lose weight. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Umar, you know, fasting, we have to go back of when fasting started. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and the thing is, it's not only in Islam. It's been in Christianity. It's been in Judaism. Mm. It's been in Hinduism, Buddhism. It's, it, it, it's, it's a universal. It's a universal concept in, mm-hmm. in religion. Yeah. Okay. In every religion. Okay, now how how it's shaped up in every religion? That's a very interesting topic, mm-hmm. and and maybe we can delve into that with more depth, you know, another day or so. But what we've seen is that every religion, uh, the way they used to fast and the way they fast now, has dramatically changed, mm-hmm. except of Islam. Yeah. Now, th- this this news that you know Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights okay you have to really consider of where the source came from Mm -hmm. okay if it's from the bible which it is the bible has been altered quite a bit yeah right so it's possible that the bit that some little bits have been missed within the and and people literally take it that oh he didn't eat and drink for forty days and forty nights, yeah. which I h- highly doubt. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Holy Prophet sallallahu so, so. used to fast from morning to evening. He used to eat in the morning before sunrise, and he used to break his fast, you know, when the sun set. So, yeah. And and I think that same concept was within Hazrat. Isa, Jesus, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him mm-hmm. as well. Because obviously he was a prophet of God Almighty. Now, you know, this a pastor trying to do the same thing. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know, Umar, where, what he was thinking. Oh, obviously, obviously, he, he wanted to follow the footsteps of Hazrat Jesus. Yeah. Okay, may peace and blessings be upon him. But is that the right way to follow? Well, unfortunately it isn't because uh, the end result uh, wasn't in his favor. 
but I guess the uh, what what we can what we can you know what we've established really it is a universal concept within it within is. religion, and um, we see it throughout the whole year. Umar, now the question arises. Okay, a lot of people will ask, you know, why do why do we fast for thirty days? Yeah, in Islam, mm-hmm. during Ramadan we fast for thirty days, thirty one days, however many days it is. Why do we do that? What what is the reason behind that? Okay, and and we've got now now you know most of the West acknowledges that fasting is very good for you for your body scientifically. Yep, it is. Let's get to that topic later. Let's take the first topic of why religion in the first place, why God Almighty has actually instructed all of us to fast. The reason for that is that, you know, you become closer to God Almighty. When you're deprived of something, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if it's food or if it's water or if it's something else. Just just deprivation of something, it makes you want it more, right? Yeah, yeah. To get that, what do you do? You go to the person who has it or who can provide it, right? Exactly. And and what does God Almighty say? That he is the provider for everything. Exactly. So a human naturally goes towards God Almighty. He remembers that, you know, I have food for 11 months of the year. Hmm. Okay. I can eat any time. I can eat whatever I want. I can drink whatever I want. At any time given, mm. that one month where you actually, you know, struggle, you get closer to God Almighty because you say, oh, you know, I had that for 11 months. You know, God Almighty provided that to me. Mm. I have to be thankful to him. That is true. Uh, and uh, rightly so, because I always look forward. I actually look forward to um, Ramadan now. I think everyone does. Yes. Um, be it uh, back in the day when you know, as a kid, uh, you know, you used to see your parents do, see it, uh, do it. You want to try it, but you know, you could only do half of it. Yeah. Uh, but now I think, um, as I'm growing older, I understand the concept more, and it makes you thankful for what yes, you have it does. because at that time, you go through someone's uh, life really as well, right? Because not everyone has food on the table. Yes. Uh, you just look at London itself. Uh, unfortunate situation outside many streets, uh, high streets in London, mm. where uh, people don't have food. They're yes. begging, uh, yes. asking for money, or even asking for some some food. It's 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 not only on the streets, Umar. Like j- just look at the situation that the general public is in. Yeah, right now, but, but government has to provide a lot of you know food vouchers, yeah. and and we've got food banks opening across the country. Enormous amounts. And uh, relying on the general public to donate as well, yes. so um, it, it, it is is a time where you, where you can become thankful, really. And it's also a time where you know God Almighty, um, where the Holy Prophet, um, sort of may peace and blessings be upon him, used to actually donate uh, financially, yes, uh, many folds, uh, even greater than uh, uh, normal times, you can say, right. And that's where the beauty comes from, because when you go th- suffer through that period of time, you understand that actually, you know what? Let me let me help out in whatever ways I can. Yes. And um, that is one of the beauty where actually it, it restarts your brain, it restarts it does. Uh, uh, everything, and you you sometimes question life again. You're like, you know what? This is a period of time where God Almighty has put for you one month where reevaluate yourself again. Yes. Are you doing something right? Are you going? the right path in, in a sense 
And uh, are you being thankful? It, it rejuvenates your spirituality, mm, isn't mm, 100%. it? 100%. For the next year to come. Mm. But the, 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 the point that you've just set, it kind of resets your mind. It doesn't only reset your mind. It resets your spirituality. It resets your body. Mm. Physically as well. Yeah. Because if you look at people nowadays, let's just talk about fasting in general, talking about the health world. You know, there's different types of fasting people do just to reduce the weight or yes. become powerful in weight training. And they do that not because, you know, they're doing it for God Almighty, but they're doing it for themselves because fasting, uh, as we've already established, has been prescribed uh, religiously uh, and universally, right? But people who have now started to accept that fasting is actually a great thing, they've, they've implemented that into their healthy lifestyles. And you only question uh, people then is, uh, why don't we do this more regularly, right? Yes. Because if it's that's such a great thing, we should be doing this really every day. And I personally do intermittent fasting, which is uh, fasting. Or it's not really fasting. It's just to maintain uh, uh, your body weight slash trying to cut it down with additional um, exercise. So you only eat for eight hours a day and you don't eat uh, for the... 16 hours oh really yeah so I basically I skip breakfast okay I don't do this every day I only do this on uh, the working day okay so you skip breakfast and you eat, usually eat from 12 to 8 okay that's when lunchtime is okay and then you don't, won't eat after 8 o'clock and then usually sleeping is of course easy you don't really have to eat. the only hard part is skipping breakfast and even then it's uh, it's a pretty uh, pretty nice um, because when you see the results at the end your physical results, you see, right? Yes. Is there, but during Ramadan and f- fasting, m- during Ramadan, you see the spiritual benefits at yes. the end of the day. Yes. So, or at least temporarily, you'll see them, and then hopefully down the line, you, you'll try to improve them again. Exactly. And I guess that's where a Ramadan is more powerful because you don't just see a physical, you see a spiritual, uh, a moral, and uh, that's sort of what it's trying to aim to do, right? Yep. And yep. Um, I, 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 th- I think, you know, the, the topic that we just touched earlier uh, about neuroscience and yeah. uncertainty, uh, the, the, the Green mentioned a very important point towards the end. He was saying he was talking about anxiety as well, anxiety, depression, and all of these points. And Umar, you know, he said that Islam already taught how to cope with that 1400, 1500 years ago. Mm. And now, how do we cope with that? And that's through Ramzan, isn't it? Mm. In a way. It's it's through Ramzan where where you get close to a, to God Almighty, and you pray to Him, and and it's kind of a therapy. It is actually really, it is. and 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 those thirty days, you could become a new person when you come out of them. Yeah, because mm-hmm. during those thirty days, you're actually trying to become the most perfect person or perfect version of yourself. Yes, uh, and that sort of ignites something. And he, and the thing is, we all we all have that perfect version. We know, but. Those thirty days are there specially just for you to maybe look look at yourself at what you could become. Yeah, and uh, is uh, of course unfortunate. Talking personally as well, that uh, sometimes uh, uh, you, you can't carry on for thirty days, but those thirty days remind you of what you can become. What you can become. So yes. I guess uh, it's a reminder as well to us that it, uh, it, it is. Uh, uh, basically, now let's just recap yeah, really quickly. Quickly, yeah. Okay, I th- I think what we've discussed is. The first point is that physically, you benefit from fasting. Mm. Okay. Now, fasting, I, 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 I want to I want to make it clear again mm. that what we mean is not by not eating or drinking for thirty days. Okay, <laughs> yeah. continuously. What we mean is that you eat no. in the morning before sunrise. Yeah. 
and then you eat after sunset. Yep. Okay. The point is that physically you become stronger. Yeah. Okay. Mentally you become stronger. Mm-hmm. Spiritually you become stronger. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Okay. So all these three points. Okay. Why why wouldn't you do that continuously? So now the Holy Prophet may peace and blessings yes, be upon him. Yeah. He did not only fast during Ramadan. He fasted during twice a week. So he fasted yeah. on Mondays and Thursdays. Mm. So why do we not do that continuously? You know, do, do you know where I'm yeah. coming from? Yeah. So so I would urge, you know, all the listeners to really dwell and really research about the benefits of fasting. Mm. Once you've researched, then you have to experience it. 100%. Experience it for yourself. And I'm not saying it's easy. No, 100%. Okay. The especially, first... especially during the summer, those summer days. Oh, yes. I, I, I was fortunate enough to miss them due to medical reasons. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> but I've just started this year, Umar. Oh. L- last year, I, I fasted after, you know, a good seven, eight years. Yeah. And it felt amazing. Nice. That's good to hear. But in the beginning, it was very difficult. Yeah. The first week, it was it was very tough for me. Yeah. And 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 that, you know, for all the listeners out there, the first week will be difficult. Get through the first week and you will see the rewards coming in. Yeah. It's a habit. It's uh, You just wake up. It, well, you struggle to wake up, but you, your eyes are there and you're ready to, you're, you're there and ready to basically do it. But yeah, I think those three health benefits that you said, physically, mentally, and spiritually, like this is what we look for in life to be yes. satisfied, right? Yeah. And um, I, I totally agree with, 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 the, with the points that we make, uh, well, you made that, you know, it's uh, why don't we do this more often? More so often, yeah. I guess. Um, so I, I, th- I think I want to go to another topic. Okay. Point. And this kind of relates with, with fasting. Okay. And all of these doctors, okay, they, they agree with us that um, fasting is good for you. Yep. And and, and it's become a universal acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. You would say that you should fast. Now, our doctors in the UK, okay, now, th- 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 this, is, this is a very serious topic, but at the same time, it, it kind of makes me laugh, Umar. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Al Jazeera reported that uh, Zimbabwe is losing doctors and teachers, mm-hmm. okay, to British hypocrisy. Okay. Now, Zimbabwe is losing doctors because of British hypocrisy. Yeah. So, it's reported. And the UK, and, and, and I told you this in the morning, you and, and you were quite surprised about it. Yeah, this. and I'm just trying to find the article. <laughs> <laughs> that the UK is starting to lose doctors and nurses and healthcare, healthcare workers to Australia. Yeah, and I just found the article. It is. I think that was quite fascinating to hear because, um, um, you know, Post-Brexit, because we have to come back to post-Brexit because it all links links to the uh, deals that we're going to make and have made at the end of the day. And to be picking out people from other countries yes. rather than retraining your own people or at least opening up borders for uh, people to come in, it, it, it really baffles me why, why uh, we are doing this. And then on the other hand, we're now having all these other countries now, ex, uh, for example, Australia coming for our doctors. So it's we're sort of going not in a circle, but it's going like in a boomerang, I guess, back to back to Australia. And then we're having all these um, strikes and uh, about pay and working conditions. I guess uh, it all comes down to you know, you know, it's all crazy right now. It is. It is. Uh, uh, if, 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 oh. if 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 I was a doctor, yeah, 
Okay. And someone would say to me, you know, come to Australia, I'll give you 80% mm. 80% pay rise. Yeah. Okay, you live in a sunny country. Yes. Okay, with more benefits. Yeah. How could I reject that? But can you live with the snakes and the kangaroos? That's that is and spiders. That's a very good. That's point. the only thing I have uh, against Australia. That is a very good point. Even though they're a big nation, they're quite big to be honest, but not that many in population. It's very sunny. It is it can get flood? Uh, it's very flood susceptible. But and drugs. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> but those are some of the things you got to take into consideration. Yeah. But you are right. Do, do, do you want to go into the sun, Umar, or do you want to stay here in London where it's grey and cloudy? Look, this is a beauty in itself. I agree, hundred percent. So I, I'd rather stick 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 in London. Good uh, point. But I think we only got five minutes left, so let's just uh, go back to our football topic, which oh. you want to. And um, we have an early kickoff, I guess, for twelve thirty. And we have a few other games today. Um, we'll go through our predictions, I guess, uh, for today. Well, U- U- Umar, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Arsenal's playing yeah, uh, yeah, early kickoff, twelve thirty, against Aston Villa. Yeah, away. Uh, former manager Unai Emery. Unai Emery. Yes. So yes. So I think. Any on the losing trotters are sort of not many points. Yes, this could be the turning point. Could this be the turning point? This yeah. could be the turning point. Yeah, because we have a game in hand. Indeed, you do. If we win this, we're back on top with three points clear of City. Yeah. Okay, and that could give us a good run of games again. Mm. You know, so I would very optimistic. Okay, I would say <laughs> Arsenal to Aston Villa one. Oh, for that one. Okay, looking at Villa's last five games, City they lost three one. Leicester City lost four two. They won against Southampton. They won against uh, won against Leeds, and they drew against Wolves. So, Umar so, Southampton they, and, and Leeds. Yeah, they're they're in pickle right now. So they aren't, aren't they? But they won against them. So it I must it, it must have given them it. some confidence. Yeah, I think. Yeah, but I think I'm gonna have to go ask the winners on this yeah. one. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's gonna be interesting to see Unai Emery see how he sets up yes. against his former club, even though it is away uh, for Arsenal. So I'm gonna go two on Arsenal as well. Yeah, I think so. Uh, the the next very interesting match, Umar, be, before we move on to your Chelsea, <laughs> yeah. okay, is is Everton and Leeds. Oh, yes. Because Everton has a new manager. manager. Leeds are managerless. Managerless. Or in, at least interim manager they yes. have at the moment. And they drew against... Uh, d- didn't they draw, draw two matches ago against City? 2-2. Two, two. They... Uh, Leeds? Yes. Uh, they drew 2-2 two, two against Man United. Yeah. Yes. But they lost 2-0 no again. Uh, again, yes. So... So, you know, I, I, th- that will be a very interesting match to watch. Sean Dyche, of course, at Everton right now. Yeah. 1-0 win against Arsenal, of course, that bounced back their head. And that, they lost 2-0 to Everton, though. So uh, yeah. Sorry, to Liverpool. To Liverpool. So the Merseyside derby. It's going to be... I think I want to go draw for this one. Uh, yeah. Do you think so? Yeah, I think we're a 1-1 draw. I, I think it's going to be a very mad, a very tough, very tough match. Yeah, it's a North London... Uh, not North London, North England derby, North really. England derby. So, uh, yeah, I think I want to go for a draw on one. A draw, yeah, I, w- I would go for the same one. No. Now, let's move on to Chelsea, <laughs> Chelsea. <laughs> versus Southampton. Well, the win probability on the Google on Google is saying 70% Chelsea. And I, and, and I favour that. Albeit that we've drawn against uh, West Ham, drawn against Fulham, 
drawn against Liverpool, won against Crystal Palace and also lost to Fulham. I think this is going to be our turning point. Um, I think we're going to win this all. And I'm going to go Southampton are bottom of the league, actually. Oh, <laughs> so they, they, they have something to fight for. They do have something, but so do we after that Champions League uh, loss where we did play pretty good, decent. So I'm going to go 2-0 Chelsea. I don't think they're going to go through our defence right now. They are also managerless, Southampton, actually. They are. Uh, they were supposed to have Jesse Marsh from Leeds. Yes. But uh, contract talks broke down because of the length. They, they tried to sign Jesse Marsh for <laughs> four or five years. Yeah. Okay. And, and when they had the chance, they offered him six months. I don't know what's happening. Don't know. Down, down south down coast. South, you know yeah. what I <laughs> But all I'm saying, I think Chelsea is 2-0. It's at home at, at the bridge. So... I, I would favour Chelsea to win. Well, if not 2-0, at least we'll get one goal in, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. But we never know. We never know. I, 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 I think I think when next time we'll come <laughs> back to the show, we'll, to the show. We'll, we'll have a lengthy discussion about what's we will, happened. We will. Uh, and then, uh, I guess, one more game for today, Nottingham Forest and City. Uh, Man City. Um, yeah. Nottingham Forest have signed some... <laughs> I don't know what they've done. They've signed the whole world, basically. They have. They have. <laughs> I don't know where they're getting this money from, but they have. And um, City, I'm. I, I think you're hoping for a loss or a draw. I, I'm hoping for a loss, but I don't think it, it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. No, I don't think. But I think another match. Oh, Newcastle versus Liverpool. Almost. Yeah, that that is that is for tomorrow. Uh, no, no today. that's today. Oh, it's five yes. thirty. Yeah. No, that's why I didn't look at it. Oh, yeah. That's so, going to be interesting. Very interesting. That is going to be interesting. We'll, we'll, uh, but the cream will be on the edge of his seat. <laughs> he will be. Hoping for a win. So, prediction for that one, last one? I, I, I would say uh, Liverpool. No, actually, Newcastle is very difficult to beat. So, I would go for a draw. Uh, I think I have to agree with you. We'll draw. Yeah. One, one draw. And that's all for today. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope to see you again next week, Saturday, from. Uh, 10 to 12 uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all